All right, amen. It's good to be with you tonight. I'm excited because I've already learned a couple of new things this evening from Pastor John's testimony. I'm definitely convinced that the Lord is calling me to hot chocolate ministry and that, that I can't wait to get home to tell my wife on what, uh, what the next chapter in our life will be. And I'm also going to adapt, Pastor, when I go back and I'm preaching there and start just calling people out by name. This is what God's calling you to do tonight. And so I'm excited about that. I tell you, it's been a blessing to be with you over this, this past day or so just to worship the Lord. And so that's what I want to really just simply invite you to do tonight. I know you don't normally come back on, on Sunday nights and that, but just to come together tonight as God is working through this conference and we're thinking about let the nations be glad and, and making him known. But really the invitation tonight is not about, about what I can tell you, it's about what God can tell you. And it's about worship. We were created to worship God. So it's worship when we bow our knees and we pray. It's worship when we sing praises to God. But it's also worship when we open God's word and we hear from him. And so as we were reading there just in in Psalm 96, as God has created us to worship, and as Pastor even alluded to this morning of, of singing that new song to the Lord and that we're created to make him known, proclaim his good tidings of salvation from day to day. And then it says there in verse 4 of Psalm 96, it says simply that for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods. And one question I have for us tonight as the church is, do we have a reverent fear of God? We're not to be afraid of God, but a reverent fear of God. Understand that God is holy. God is just and who our God really is. And that we stand in awe of him. And not just, oh, I'm going to go do this or God's going to help me with that, but a reverent fear and awe of how awesome God really is. And that out of that reverent fear of him, we understand how great he is that we are to go and to make him known. And so tonight, as we look out of the book of Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. We're going to be mainly starting in in verse 6, but uh, I got to get you there first. And one of the things I love about the book of Acts, and you know this well, It's uh, about the history of the early church, and it's kind of that first 30 years, and as God is working. But what I love in the book of Acts is it's filled with people who are sold out for Christ, who say, listen, I'll do anything, because they've met the living Lord, he's changed their life, and they say, God, my life belongs to you. Take whatever it is, whatever happens, I will follow you. They understand that God will never leave them or forsake them. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone does everything perfect. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about people stepping out in faith. And that's what I want to talk to us tonight about is how do we have faith and not fear? How do we have gospel courage in a hostile culture, in a hostile world? Because as we talked about this morning, church, right now, and, and it's always been that, but now more than ever, the world needs to see a church Filled with people of gospel courage. Not a false bravado, not an arrogance. Broken people living in the power of Christ. That's what I love about the book of Acts. It's about God's mission. It's about glorifying him and making him known. He's worthy of worship. And, but that's done by God's people living in God's power. And so we see here, I love the book of Acts. Of course, we know it begins with in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You get one version of the Great Commission, right, where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And that's the outline of the book, is it not? Sorry, I 
bouncing this around. It's the outline of the book, is it not? Chapters 1 through 8, where are they? They're in Jerusalem. When they come to chapter 8, God allows persecution to come upon the church. And when the persecution comes, where are they driven out to? Judea and Samaria. Then in Acts chapter 13, they come together as the church and they begin to go out and make Christ known out of the church at Antioch. And God says, set aside Paul and Barnabas and he begins to send them out. And so we see where we're going to pick up the text tonight. We're going to pick it up on that second missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas have been out on the first missionary journey. They've gone, they've shared the gospel, they've come back. And as they've come back, they've reported back to the church at Antioch. They've talked about what God has done as we should do. As you see your missionaries here are reporting back and sharing about what God has done. But then they're telling that and they're saying, okay, and they come together and they're talking at the Jerusalem council and they're doing kind of like what we talked about this morning. We said, hey, if you're going to go out and tell people about the Lord and, and equip people to go and share the gospel, they have to answer the questions, what do I say? Who do I tell? Building that pathway. The what makes you think I'll do this? That comes from your, your walking with the Lord and being moved by the Spirit. But then they have to answer the question, what do we do if they say yes? And that's what's happening here. As the people said yes, they said, listen, these Gentiles have believed. What do we do? They're not circumcised. They, they, eat, they eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. How are we going to deal with this? And you see the church coming and working through these issues there. And then as you go, they have the Jerusalem council. They, they write the letter. They say, let's take these decrees back to the church. They go to Antioch there and they deliver the decree. And then you see Paul says, hey, let's go back and let's, let's share with the churches and let's tell them and encourage and strengthen the churches and share the gospel with them. Now you see here at the end of chapter 15, if you want to know the real mission field deal, people are not perfect. They have all sorts of challenges. What happens? Barnabas says, hey, let's take, let's go back and let's take John Mark with us, right? And Paul says, we're not taking John Mark. He left us on the first journey. He went back. He gave up. I'm not taking him. And here's Barnabas. I think you see in this text here, Barnabas is someone who at this time is more mature. And he says, all right, that's fine. Paul, I'll take John Mark with me. Paul says, I'll take Silas. And they begin to go out. And they're going to go back on the second missionary journey. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 16. The first five verses there, just to sum up with our time here. This is where Paul goes into Derby and Lystra there in verse 1. And, and he sees the disciple Timothy and the son of a Jewish woman who was, who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And Paul wants to take Timothy with him. And so he wanted to, he wanted to bring him. So he says, you know, because of his father being a Greek, his mom being Jewish, I'm going to have him circumcised. He's circumcised and they bring Timothy with them. And one of the reasons I just wanted to bring that up in the context there was I want you to see that Paul was not a lone ranger. Sometimes at seminary, we talk about Paul as the great missionary as if he was all out doing this all by himself. He was always taking someone with him. He was always teaching others and he was always equipping there. And so he is taking Timothy as Silas with them. And then they begin to go out on the second missionary journey. And so we look here beginning in verse six, it says, and they passed through, uh, uh, Phrygian and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy spirit to speak the word in Asia. Verse 7, after they came to uh, Mysia and they went on and go into Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them and, uh, to go and to passing, and then passing by Messenia, they came to Troas. And then verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul 
in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when they had seen, uh, when they had seen the, the vision, immediately we, Luke is joining them at this time, sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. First thing I want us to see, church, tonight is if we're going to be a church with gospel courage in a, in a hostile cur- culture, we have to be people who are walking close to God. I just want to challenge you tonight and just say, where are you really at tonight? It's not a raise your hand. It's not a, a prideful thing. It's not saying that, that others are, are doing certain things. It's just saying, coming before the Lord during this time of the missions conference and just saying, where's my walk really with God? Am I really hearing from God? And I'm not talking about hearing from an audible voice or that kind of thing. I'm talking about coming into the scriptures and through prayer. And as God is speaking into your heart, are you hearing from God and being guided by the Lord? If we're going to have gospel courage, we have to trust that God is going to be speaking into our hearts. And we're going to be hearing from him. And we're not talking about a timer of how much time did you spend in the word and prayer. But I'm just saying spending time with God. We're created to live with God and not simply for God. In our culture, we're very task-oriented and that we're going to have that relationship with God. Just asking, are we walking close to him? Are we trusting in God's calling? Are we trusting this week as you were going through this conference time and you're having the, the mission time and you're thinking about reaching out to the nations? Are you really open to what God might be asking you to do? Well, you're joking around about it and different things, but are you really open to God might be calling you out or that next step that he might be asking you to do. And we see in this text, they are walking close to God because God is saying, don't go here, don't go there. It's not God saying, I don't care about people in Asia, I don't care about people over here. God's saying, I have a plan. I am sovereign over the calling and sending of your life. Walk with me, trust me, and obey what I ask you to do. But the only way we can do that, church, is we have to be spending time in the Word. We have to be proclaiming God's Word. We have to spend time in prayer and be hearing from God. So I ask you tonight, is that where you're really at? And then we see here in verse 10, it says, when they saw the vision and they were sharing it, it says, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. So Paul has the Macedonian vision. He's sharing that. And they immediately started to obey. Now, I know for you and those of you that have kids in this room, your kids never do anything wrong. They never disobey, but mine do. And that, and I can remember growing up in, in Africa there and, and my oldest daughter, Rachel, she's now about to be 21. And when she was a, a young girl, she used to love to just jump on the bed. And I'd always catch her in there jumping on the bed. She'd try to sneak in when I wasn't there and, and jump on the bed. And when I would tell her to get down, sometimes she would just jump down and obey what I'd ask her to do. Other times she would do like your kids don't, but mine do. She kind of do that. What? Two or three more little jumps and then jump down. Right. And then she'd jump on down and kind of look at you. Right. Well, whenever she would do that, and I cannot say that I was Mr. Disciplinarian at all and that, but whenever she would do that, she would get in trouble because what I was wanting to teach her and what we need to understand church is delayed obedience is still disobedience. If we're going to have gospel courage, if we're going to trust what God is asking us to do, then we need to obey when God speaks. And what I mean by that is through his word and in prayer and as God guides and as God has a plan and a purpose for Grace Baptist Church in this community and in you as an individual in the body of Christ, we need to immediately obey what God is asking us to do. I love this part of the text because we used to say in Africa, we used to do a, a lesson that we would teach all the time, my African brothers 
uh, developed this, and I loved it. We call it the four calls in Uganda. The call from above, the Great Commission. All authority, Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. Go and make disciples. The call from below, they would use out of Luke chapter 16, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And they would tell the story there. And it was just simply the theme of that part in this context was to talk about the reminder that hell is real. That's something we don't talk about enough, church. And I'm not talking about just hellfire and brimstone uh, sermons and, and coming down and making people feel guilty or trying to make them feel afraid. But the one thing the enemy's done here in America is to say, don't worry about me. You're right. Your science is good. You figured it out. You're intellectual enough. Don't listen to this, this nonsense over here. Why destroy your children with pornography? Why rip apart your families? Don't worry about me. It's okay. I don't exist. But there would be the call from below, the reminder that hell was real. Or the call from the inside, 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul, and I, and starting in verse 6, where Paul is saying, I have to preach the gospel. I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I'm not doing it for resources and that. I must compre- preach the gospel. That compulsion of the Holy Spirit driving our lives and saying, God has a plan and a purpose for me. And to step into that. And then they would use this text to say the call from the outside. The Macedonian call saying, where is God calling you? You see, as we talked about this morning, church, there are no aha days with God. You and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't even know what's going to happen this evening, but God does. And we can trust in God's sovereignty. There are no aha days with him. And in a world that's literally blowing up right in front of us, as we talked about some this morning as well, you see it with Ukraine and people pouring out all over the world. This has been happening for a long time. We have to say, what is God calling us as a church to do and step in and engage? This is one thing I know, though, church, is mission and evangelism and all of these things will always seem like a chore if you approach it as works and not worship. It's out of worship that you go out and make Christ known. It's out of coming together here as the body of Christ, worshiping God, and then going to make him known. And we see this in that text. And so first question and first thing we see here, if we're going to have gospel courage, is we need to be walking close to God to the Lord. Uh, Part two there is saying we'd also need to be boldly sharing the gospel, picking up there in verse 11. It says, so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran ran the course to uh, Samothrace and then the following day to the Neapolis. And then from there, they went to Philippi, which was the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we're supposing that there would be people, uh, a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled. You see, not only do we need to be walking close to God, but we need to be boldly sharing the gospel. That's what they said when God had called them to go there. They knew God was asking us to go and to preach the gospel. Mission includes the gospel. It's not just acts of kindness. It includes sharing the gospel. It's not shoving something down someone's throat, but it's being really the church and life on life with people, but sharing about the gospel, the good news, that God has changed our hearts. And and so when they get there, they go and they they come up with just a very, very simple strategy. They arrive in the city. They know God's called them to go. And they said, listen, we're going to go down by the river where we know there will be people who are seeking after God. There'll be people of prayer going there. 
As we talked about this morning, missiology is not methodology, church. It's applied theology. They said, listen, we're going to go where we know people are seeking after God, and then we're going to tell them about Christ. We're going to engage with gospel intentionality. You know, it's not the methodology. It's time for us as the church to step back from that and stop, stop fighting over all those things. If we come out of the theology and we follow what's there with the scriptures, we'll get the methodology right. We want to fight over the methodology all the time when you know what it ends up looking like to the world and what it is. It's going back to six or being six years old in kindergarten and saying, my dad can beat up your dad. I'm smarter than you are. I wrote a book about it. It's time for the church to be broken and say, listen, we're going to go and make Christ known. We're going to share the gospel with a lost and a dying world. We're not going to try to one-up one another. We're going to empower one another. And we're going to go and tell the world about Christ. So you see that here. They're going out. They're making Christ known. They're sharing the gospel. And then what happens? They're trusting that God will guide them. You know, when I know what God has asked me to do, I don't have to be afraid. That doesn't mean I won't face many challenges. But when I know that God has asked me to take this next step, And I just want to challenge you this week to say, what is your next step? What is God asking you to do? And we see in these texts, and as Paul is on these missionary journeys, you see he's starting to have experiences, as we'll see the trials he's about to face, where he would later write in Romans, what shall we say if God is with us? Who can stand against us? Because he's learning about who Christ is, or he would be remembering what Joshua had said, right? When Joshua said, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I can remember when God was asking us to leave Uganda and go into Algeria, and we had done language school and everything, and we were preparing to fly into a country that I knew. It has top-down persecution. If you share the gospel there, it's three to five years in prison. People disappear for becoming believers. And as we were preparing to go in country, I was starting to wane. I was starting to be fearful. I was starting to say, I don't know. Does God want me to take my wife, take my two girls into this country where they don't even like women? There could be so many things that could happen. And I was beginning to wane. And I'll never forget my beautiful wife, Rebecca, saying to me, don't be afraid. Jesus is already Lord of Algeria. We just need to go and proclaim about who he is and make him known. That's faith that's leading to boldness. That's trusting in God. That's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they had come before King Nebuchadnezzar and he had challenged them. He's, gonna, he's built the idol. He's going to throw them in the furnace. And he says, what God can deliver you from my hand? And what do they say? Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even have to answer you about that. But if it be so, God can deliver us from the burning fire and you. But even if he does not, we will never bow down to your idol. That's what faith really looks like. It says, no matter what happens in my life, I will trust the Lord. I can remember in Uganda as we would go and we would do baptisms by the water and there would always be the the witch doctors there. and There'd be lots of people worshiping idols because they felt like they were afraid of the water and there would be demonic things that would be happening there. And as we would go to baptize, they would have all of the idols there. And I can remember we would always talk about how how we've come to share the gospel with people about the living God. 
Because we would say to them as they're worshiping idols there, not in a prideful way, but as we would talk about things, we'd say, listen, I'm coming to tell you about the one life-changing God. You see, with an idol, you, you have a God that has eyes but cannot see, has ears but cannot hear, has a mouth but cannot speak. He said, let me, we've come to tell you about the one life-changing God who sees his people, who hears his people, who speaks to his people. And when you face great challenges in this world, you don't have to carry, pick up your God and carry him with you. He carries you. There's a difference in who our God is. And so as they go, they're proclaiming Christ. And what happens? Verse 14, it says, a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyrenia, uh, uh, Tyatira, sorry, a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God, she was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon the, uh, upon us. What I love about this part of the text is it's God who saves church. God is sovereign over salvation. You can't save anyone. I can't save anyone. That's the beauty of the gospel, right? That's the good news. That's why the gospel is the good news. God has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He has come and lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He has paid the price that we cannot pay. That's why the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to die on the cross. And then he rose again on the third day. And we see here that God opens Lydia's heart, or her heart, and she accepts the Lord. And she goes back. And we don't know all the time of this, of who all was in her household and that. The text doesn't tell us that. But she goes back and, her, and shares the gospel. She's bold. She shares and her family receives the Lord. And I always love in this part of the text, it reminds me of almost every Muslim woman that I've ever met. And I know she's not Muslim, obviously, in this text, but those marks are there. And what do I mean by that? She's a seller of purple fabrics. She's wanting to take care of her home. She's a worshiper of God. She's a God-fearer. She believes there's one God, but she just doesn't know him. And she's a woman of prayer. Any Muslim woman that you meet out there would be that, have to agree with all of those marks. But you know what they're missing? Same thing Lydia was missing, the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, we've worked mostly in the Muslim world, and here's what I've seen over and over again. Muslims aren't necessarily, there is a lot of persecution, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But what I've seen over and over again is most Muslims aren't just rejecting the gospel. They've just never heard it. And as we go as the church, we go and we share about who Christ is. I can remember this part of the text reminds me of a, of a young lady, Miriam, who her husband, who Mohammed, had been a sheikh at the mosque. He was training to be the next leader of the mosque. And through his friend, Twaha, that we had the joy of helping to lead to the Lord. Twaha had been the Muslim witch doctor there. They have a lot of syncretism in that. That's a story for another day. He had come to know the Lord. And as Muhammad was going to him and, and learning about the change in the life that he's seen with his friend, he begins to ask questions and God uses Twaha to lead Muhammad to the Lord. And then Muhammad starts to share with his wife and his wife said, you ruined our life. We have a home here. We're going to be at the mosque. We have, we have resources. What have you done? I'm going to turn you in. But all of a sudden, as Muhammad began to love her in a way that he had never loved her before, she saw the change in her husband's life. Muhammad led her to the Lord. And then not shortly after that, Muhammad disappeared. 
He was gone for three days. We thought for sure he was dead. He had, his father was a major leader in the Muslim community. We thought he was gone. They had been driven out from their home in the mosque. They were now living in a slum area. They were with some other believers. And one night, men from the mosque came to burn down their home. It wasn't much of a home, but they came to burn it down. They had the jerry cans. They came and they said, Miriam, come out of your home. We're going to burn it down. And here's Miriam. She had not been a believer for very, very long. She came outside and she said, you can take my house. You can take my husband, but you can never take Christ from me. Those men that night dropped those jerry cans and went back to the mosque. And God used her faith that led to boldness to start to spark a wildfire in this community. People say, who is this God? Who is this one that we've never heard about? Church, if we're going to be a, have gospel courage, we not only need to walk close to God, but we need to boldly share the gospel. But then we go on in the story very quickly. We see not only do we need to do that, but we need to do, we need to be expecting persecution. Look at verse 16 with me very quickly. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having the spirit of divination met us who was, uh, who was bringing her masters much profit and fortune telling. She was following Paul and us and she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And that, and it came out at that very moment. Now listen, church, in the terms of expecting persecution, this is not a Western concept. You've, you heard, you heard uh, uh, Nick sharing about that this morning, talking about all the things that have gone on in terms of, of persecution. But what I want you to see in this text is God is also sovereign over our opposition. God is also sovereign over the persecution. God might even send us into a situation where we would face persecution. You see in this text, God said, don't go here. Don't go there. I want you to go to Macedonia. I'm sending you to Philippi. I'm actually sending you right into a difficult situation. And I want you to proclaim about who I am. As we said a minute ago, church can't remind us enough, the reminder of the fact that the devil is real and he wants to destroy our families. That's why I love the book of Ephesians, theologically and positionally who we are in Christ. And then four, chapters four through six, we go and we make Christ known by living it out. And so we see here in this text quickly, the spiritual warfare is real. And one of the ways it's real is by distraction, uh, causing confusion, frustration, or fear. This girl here, she's coming. She's possessed by a spirit. She's crying out with Paul. She's following them around for many, many days. And so many times, the enemy wants to cause confusion, to break up unity. That's why Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, what did he pray for? He prayed that we would be unified. He could have prayed anything, and he prayed for the church to be one. Just as I am in you, Father, and you are in me. So that the world would know that you have sent me. It's not just unity of an idea. It's not just unity of a project that we're working on at our company. It's Trinitarian unity. It's that you would be just as I am in you, Father, and you are in me. Make them unified. Because the world cannot stand against that. The enemy cannot stand against that. And we see that Paul is frustrated. He got distracted. He cast out the demon that was there. But it's reminded that that spiritual warfare is real. There's always the temptation to sin or to do what I call mess up. 
right? And sometimes the enemy will bring about sin and we have to guard our lives, mess up. You might even be disqualified if you're in ministry or, or break up a marriage. He's always looking to destroy us in that way. The other way is puff up. Hey, listen, church, you've got this figured out, man. You got a nice building. You had a great conference. You're looking good. God loves you, right? So puff up. Hey, we got this figured out. Or one of the biggest ones that we all face, if we admit it and be honest, is give up. Scriptures are filled over and over again with hold fast to Christ. And that, so to not give up. So even though things may appear messy, church, as we go into live on mission, it's never out of God's control. And so we see as we go on in this text, quickly, not only does their distraction is one way that we see and face persecution, but then you have a physical attack here. It says, but her masters saw that their, pro- uh, saw that their hope of profit was gone. So they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace and they say to the people, just moving forward a little bit, these are the men who are throwing the city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs, which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. Now here they isolate Paul and Silas because they see Timothy, they see Luke, and they say, okay, they're, they're, they're Greeks, they're Romans, and that. They think that Paul and Silas are not. They seize them for being Jews, and then they go on, and what begins to happen that's there? It says in, in verse uh, 20, I'm sorry, in verse 22, it says, the crowd rose up together, and against them, the chief magistrate, they tore their clothes, and they proceeded and they ordered them to be beaten, and then they had stuck them with many, struck them with many blows. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer and the guard to, to, to guard them securely. And having received such a command, they threw them in to the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Here you see what we're all, what many of us are really afraid of. I am. Physical persecution. I want someone to come beat me up, Right? You see here, their clothes are torn. They lose dignity. They're, they're beaten, which is the fear of, of, of being just the harm. They're thrown in prison. Do you think, oh, they're stopped? Man, they failed. What kind of mission is this? If we survive this, what are we going to report back to? Mission is based on obedience, church. You let God decide the results. They were being faithful as they stepped in to what God was doing in their life. And as they were beaten and thrown into prison, you just have to ask ourselves, what's our response? I remember in Algeria, meeting with a guy, Rashid, who was one of the heads of the underground churches. When we first met, we were talking about reaching out and engaging. Rashid said to me, how are you going to model boldness? How does this company that you set up, how of all of these things, how is this going to model boldness for the gospel? Because he was a man that had scars from being beaten for the gospel. And he wanted to know, am I working with someone who's serious? Or is this just some kind of, you know, side thing that you're doing? And that just remembering to be, to model that boldness and to trust that God is in control. And we see here as the, as the story moves forward, there, that not only church do we need to be walking close to God if we're going to have gospel courage. Not only do we need to boldly share the gospel. Not only do we need to be expecting persecution, but we also need to be building the kingdom. Look what happens here as we finish out with the story. It says, but by midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly they came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house was shaken. And immediately the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. 
And when the jailer awoke and he saw the prison was open, he threw himself on his sword and he was about to kill himself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We are all here. I love this because Paul and Silas, they don't lose sight of the heavenly vision. It's just like we see in Hebrews where it says, hey, in in chapter 12, we have such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us that we need to lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily chokes us out and run the race of endurance. Right? Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who endured the cross, despised the the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did Jesus sit down? Because the work is complete. And you see that God is the one that allows the earthquake. God is the one that breaks the chains that are there. And now God reveals his purpose in the midst of this persecution. His purpose is, my sheep will hear my voice. None shall be lost. The Philippian jailer needed to hear the gospel. And Paul and Silas were placed right in the midst of the persecution. So when he saw the earthquake, and here's a man who's about to kill himself because of what has happened, Paul says, don't do it. We didn't leave. We're still here. And it says there in verse 29, he called and he called for the lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. One of the greatest men I had the honor of working with is a man named Adel. He lives in Annabah in the eastern part of Algeria. He was a man who was on his way to go be with the Taliban. He tells his testimony. He had the super long beard. He was so full of rage. He was so full of hate. He just wanted to not only kill himself, he wanted to kill anyone. And he was standing on the beach in Algeria just a few days before he was going to go join the Al-Qaeda and go to Afghanistan to fight and hopefully in his mind to die for God. Maybe that would be the only chance he could earn a way of salvation. What he didn't know that day was there were other Algerian believers on that beach and there was a brave young lady named Saida who, began, who later on became his wife. And here he is. They've been going on the beach. They've been talking with other people. They've been sharing the gospel. They saw Adel and people said, whoa, don't go over by him. That's trouble. He's going to kill you. Saida said, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to share with him. She shared the gospel. She gave him the word of God. And over those next few days, God was working in a mighty way. Long story short, Adel became a believer. He didn't fly to Afghanistan to join Al-Qaeda and to fight for what he thought was the kingdom of God. He gave his life to Christ and God used him. And now he's been pastoring for many, many years in Algeria, leading others to Christ. He's gone. He's faced a lot of persecution. He's faced a lot of challenges. His family's had to be moved so many times. I can remember being with him and we were baptizing some guys in a bathtub and that we had filled up with water from an abandoned home because you had to live in, in the secrecy that was there. And he was bold. He said, we'll do anything that God asked us to do. And where he lives in Annabelle was ancient Hippo, where uh, if Augustine or Augustine was born today, he would have been Algerian. And what, what he used to love to say is, I hope my life is like Augustine. I want my people to know that we're not talking about a God from the West. We're not talking about a great white hope. We're talking about the one living God who Augustine was writing about many years ago. And God uses him even today in a mighty way. He was a man filled with gospel courage. 
and that. He said, listen, I will do whatever God asked me to do. He understood Hebrews 11. He understood the cloud of witnesses. I love how John Piper will say, you know, we, we love to hear the stories in the cloud of witnesses of all the great things God has done. We don't like the part where it says others are, have been sawn in two. Right? And I love how Piper says, how can people who are living in sheep clothing, living in caves, glorify the Lord? It's because they are living placards to the people around them that there's something greater than the things of this world. And what's greater is Christ himself. People see our life, church. People see how we live. It's not a judgment thing. I'm just saying, man, let's, let's get serious about Jesus. Let's get serious about being a testimony. Let's open our hearts to say, God, use us in however you want to use us. Lord, let's walk close together. Let's sharpen one another as the body of Christ. Let's boldly share the gospel and the gifts that God has given us. Let's throw away the, what would be the American dream in one sense. I'm not talking about go home and burn down your house or something crazy. I'm just saying, listen to understand that we'll expect persecution. And expect that God may lead us into that, but God is God and we'll trust him. If we trust him even unto death, don't we really believe? Stepping into what God is calling us to do and then realize that God is having us always build the kingdom. And then in closing, we see the story. What happens? They go, the jailer said, they said, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. You and your household, that's exactly what happens. He takes Paul and Silas back. He cleans up their wounds there, and they begin to greatly rejoice. And then the magistrate says, we need to release these guys. Paul says, wait a minute. They beat us publicly. They came out and did this. They need to come and release us themselves. The magistrate and them get get afraid of what's going to happen. But Paul just wanted them to be held accountable. And what I love here is at the end of the story in this text, what do they do? They leave the prison. They go back. They go to Lydia's home. They rejoice. They encourage the believers. And then they continue the mission. They go on. Uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they go on. They begin to go and they begin to share in Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth and back to Antioch. And they begin to follow what God has called them to do. So my challenge to you is really simple, church. Where's God calling you to serve in this church? And it's out of the worship in this body of Christ that you go and make Christ known. It's in our brokenness that we're made strong. It's in our independence, our interdependence that God really works. It's when people start to come in and you're going out to them in this community and they see that the gospel is starting to become the aroma of life to some and it's the aroma of death to others. But they come in and they see a life that has changed because we have a message to share the good news of the living God. As Isaiah said, nobody's ever seen a God like this. Let me tell you about it. He changed my life. For me personally, I should be dead or in prison. But the Lord Jesus held my life, changed my heart. I don't know what your testimony is, but there's one life-changing God. So church, as we close here in prayer, I just want to ask you, what's God really calling you to do as you follow your leaders and share the gospel? Gospel courage is not a false bravado. It's not anything but broken people living in the power of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, Father, we thank you for our time to be together tonight. 
Thank you for those that have come out to worship. Father, I pray that anything that was said tonight that wasn't uh, of your text or from you, that it would be erased, that the only people would hear from your word. Father, thank you for who you are. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.